The year is 1984. A little girl of only eight years old has gone missing. She was last spotted buying a piece of bubblegum from a local general store only 500 meters from her home in Queensville, Ontario. She was reported missing later that day and was never seen alive again. This is Cold Canada Episode 9, The Abduction and Murder of Christine Jessup. I want to preface this episode with a warning. This story contains a gruesome crime involving a child. Listener discretion is advised. October 3, 1984 was a life-changing day for the Jessup family. Janet Jessup saw her daughter Christine off to school that morning. She had no idea that would be the last time she'd ever lay eyes on her only daughter. That afternoon, Christine got off the bus after school, grabbed her bike, and headed to the general store located just down the same road to purchase a five-cent piece of gum, as she does most days. Janet and Kenny, Christine's 14-year-old brother, were going out for the afternoon. It was reported the mother and son went to go visit the dad, Robert Jessup, in jail and run some errands. Robert was serving 18 months in prison for misappropriation of funds. The sweet, blonde little girl of only eight years old was last spotted at that store at approximately 3.45 p.m. wearing a blue sweater, brown corduroy pants, and gray running shoes. Janet and Kenny returned home to an empty home at approximately 4.15 p.m. They spotted Christine's bike thrown by the side of the home and her jacket hanging up in the hallway. When they discovered she wasn't in the home, they weren't initially worried. Christine was supposed to be going to a friend's house after school. It wasn't until after they found out she never showed up at her friend's house did the alarm bell start to go off for Janet. She called around to all of her friend's homes and neighbors, but no one had seen Christine all afternoon. By 8.30 p.m. that evening, she still didn't appear, and Janet called police to report her missing. I do just want to make a note that this was 1984, and an 8- 8 or 9-year-old girl Uh, roaming the street by herself. It wasn't an uncommon thing. It happened quite a bit. It happened into the 90s. I know it's not something that would happen nowadays, but it was something that happened quite often in that decade. Queensville, Ontario is a busy suburb now, but in 1984, it was a tiny village of only 400 residents. People that were born and raised in the community tended to stay, so it was safe to say the families were all familiar with one another. This town was located approximately 60 kilometers north of Toronto, Ontario, which is one of the largest cities in Canada. The tiny town didn't see this kind of thing happen. Police were not prepared for what was going to be discovered. The next three days were agony for Janet and Kenny. Christine was nowhere to be found. The small community came together in a mad search for the little girl. Hundreds of people came out to help look for her, but after three long days of searching, no clues arose. The eight-year-old's face was plastered on every media outlet nationwide. Police had no idea what happened to Christine. They attempted to interview all of those who knew her or possibly could have seen her that day, but their attempts turned up empty. Over the next two and a half months, Janet and Kenny never gave up hope, searching for the little girl every single day. Police had nothing new to go on. It wasn't until almost three months later, on New Year's Eve, did new information come forward 
that no one was prepared for. At approximately 12 p.m. on December 31st, 1984, a local resident was searching for his dog in a wooded area of Sunderland, Ontario, approximately 60 kilometers east of Queensville. He stumbled across some clothing and what appeared to be skeletal remains. He immediately called police who went to the scene. Police reported the person found was, quote, dead for a long time, unquote. Foul play was instantly suspected. They discovered clothing, a musical instrument, and bones at the scene. They initially thought it could be Christine, as the recorder found next to her body had her name on it. They recovered the evidence and started the process of IDing the remains. After a few agonizing days, it was confirmed through dental records that the body found was Christine Jessup. The family was understandably devastated. Like many missing person cases, family was distraught over the unknown. It was of little relief for them to find out she had been killed. Jessup's father, Robert, who had been given a compassionate release from jail, told CBC at least they had her back. This horrible crime was a tragedy for the entire town. Over 250 people showed up for Christine's funeral, an overwhelming amount of support for the Jessup family. Christine was laid to rest in a graveyard behind the family's home, where she liked to spend some of her time. The family wanted her close. She enjoyed going to the graveyard on occasion and felt it was a perfect place for Christine to be buried. It was one thing for the Jessup family to find out their daughter was murdered. It was a completely new level of devastation when they were told how Christine had died. Her official cause of death was from multiple stab wounds, but the tiny girl had also been sexually assaulted. Trace amounts of semen were found in the girl's underwear. This left the family with even more questions. They wanted to know what kind of sick person could have done this to an innocent young girl. The case was handed over to Durham Regional Police the day after the discovery of the body. They immediately went to work on trying to find who committed this crime. There was immense pressure internally and from the community. The people who lived in Queensville were on edge. They didn't feel safe knowing a child killer could be lurking the streets of their village. Neighbors, friends, and family were all interviewed by police in hopes of uncovering new information. It wasn't until February 14, 1985, did police become interested in Jessup's neighbor, Guy Paul Morin. Janet had labeled him, quote, a weird type of guy, unquote. He was interviewed several times, and on April 22, 1985, Morin was arrested for Christine's murder. The village breathed a huge sigh of relief. Everyone was happy someone was finally going to be held responsible for the terrible crime. Guy Paul Morin was 24 years old at the time and lived with his parents next door to the Jessup family. He was quiet, reportedly rarely ever socializing with anyone, and never interacting with either Kenny or Christine. It was the comment from Janet about him being strange that police took and ran with. He looked good for the crime, he fit the profile, he was a neighbor, and police wanted desperately to solve this crime. Unfortunately, tunnel vision from police would cause the Jessup family and Morin to go through hell for the next decade. On January 7, 1986, nine months after Morin's arrest, the murder trial begins. 
Exactly one month later, on February 7th, the jury acquits Warren of the crime. The family was shocked. Everyone in the community was surprised. They were all convinced this man was guilty. But this wasn't the end. Less than one month after the trial, the acquittal was appealed by the Crown, and on June 5th, 1987, the Court of Appeal orders a new trial. Morin appeals this, and on November 7th, 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada denies Morin's appeal for that second trial. Finally, in 1992, five and a half years since finding Christine's body, the second murder trial begins. It's at this point the timeline was questioned. Morin had punched out at work at 4.15 p.m., which wouldn't give him enough time to abduct Christine, and Janet stated her and Kenny were home at 4.10. There were a few inconsistencies. Janet said maybe she didn't notice the time. Her clock could have been wrong. Police also told her it's possible she misread the clock. She then changed her statement and testified they didn't get home until 4.30, giving Morin time to abduct the little girl. There was also a jailhouse informant that testified Morin confessed to him that he killed Christine. It was discovered later on the informant was not credible. He was a known pathological liar and was claiming the confession in hopes of getting his sentence reduced. Also, hair collected from Warren's vehicle being used as evidence wasn't an exact match. Turns out it was matched with 20 to 30 other samples. It was stated by Guy's lawyer that just because you're strange doesn't make you a murderer, but the family was still convinced Warren was the murderer. A lengthy nine months later, the jury finds Morin guilty of first-degree murder and is sentenced to life in prison. At the time, this was the longest murder trial in Canadian history. The Jessup family and community of Queensville breathe a huge sigh of relief, again. Finally, the person responsible has been charged and locked away. Regrettably, this reprieve would be fairly short-lived. On January 23, 1995, Guy Paul Morin was acquitted of the murder. DNA testing technology had advanced. The DNA found at the scene was tested against Morin's and it was not a match, not even close. Morin was cleared of the murder charge and immediately released. The case was transferred to the Toronto Police Services. The investigation had to start all over again. A few years later in 1997, Morin was awarded $1.25 million for the wrongful conviction. This also set off an inquiry into other possible wrongful convictions in Canada. At this point, it's been over 10 years since Christine went missing from a small community that fall afternoon in 1984. They've been through multiple trials, emotional roller coasters, and are still left without any answers. Christine's murder is still at large, and the police just wasted 10 years solely focusing on Morin, helping the killer get further away. He could be anywhere by now. The case goes cold. Over the next 15 years, there are no arrests made, no clues revealed. In 2012, there was a cold case review and DNA was retested, but nothing was revealed. According to police, over 350 people were questioned in relation to the murder of Christine, but they never had enough evidence to make an arrest. It wasn't until the DNA sample of semen from the crime scene was sent to the States for genealogy testing. If you don't know much about this, it's a controversial technology not yet used in Canada. Traditional DNA testing only reveals 20 genetic markers, but this technology is used to extract hundreds of thousands of markers and build a family tree based on those markers. The markers can be tracked back to where the unknown DNA had come from, 
identifying even distant relatives. It's the same technology used to convict the Golden State Killer this year after being free for over 40 years. That case was what inspired me to do this podcast. The documentary I referenced in my host bio featured the Golden State Killer case and how eventually using familial genealogy technology, they were able to match his DNA and finally convict him of multiple counts of murder. The lab, Orthrum Inc., received the DNA sample and went to work building the family tree trying to find a match. It so happened they had a corresponding match to the sample. They finally had a match and a name. Using blood from an autopsy performed on the suspect, it was confirmed who killed Christine Jessup without a doubt. Just last week, on October 15, 2020, just over 36 years since the little girl went missing that day, police revealed to the public who committed the crime. Calvin Hoover, a family friend, was the person responsible for the murder of Christine Jessup and indirectly responsible for the wrongful conviction of Guy Paul Morin. The family was shocked to find out who the match came back as. Police say he died by suicide in 2015, but if he was alive today, he would be convicted of first-degree murder, sexual assault, and spend the rest of his life in jail. So who exactly was Calvin Hoover? According to Kenny, he was a close friend of the family. They often had barbecues together, the children played together, and Calvin's wife Heather even worked with Robert. Janet and Kenny were understandably feeling betrayed, outraged, and angry. They finally had answers of who, but they would never get the answer as to why he did this to little Christine. Hoover was found hanging from the ceiling in his garage by his son at their home in Port Hope in 2015. It was not publicized why he would kill himself or if there was a note left behind. It was rumored that police had questioned him in relation to the murder not long before he was discovered, but the police deny this story. Police are still trying to put together a timeline of Hoover's actions between 1984 and 2015. They say the case is still open and ongoing until they can trace his actions between those 29 years. Calvin was convicted in 1996 for drunk driving, but other than that, he had a clean record. Jana told the media when the shock wore off of who did this to her only daughter, it did make sense to her. Calvin knew Kenny and her would be away from the house that day. Hoover's wife, Heather, and Janet were good friends. Janet called her that day. She was one of only three people who knew they were going to go see Bob in jail. Christine had a tantrum in the background while she was on the phone with Heather because she wanted to go with them to see her father. Heather must have heard, and when their conversation was finished, she possibly mentioned the plans for the Jessups that day to her husband, and he saw his opportunity. It's speculated he may have lured her into his car on promises of taking her to see her father. This was thought because of the recorder that was found with Christine's body. She wanted to bring it to show her father. Also, due to where her jacket was found hanging, the hook it was on was too high for her to reach. Someone who was taller had to have hung it up there for her. Despite the breakthrough, police will continue to try to find out the motive behind this crime and more about Hoover. At 70 years old, Janet is thankful they have finally have an answer as to who. She states she'll have to accept that she may never know the why. Christine's brother, Kenny, was hoping to see some justice for the crime and hopes that he'll see the answer to why in his lifetime, but admits that may never happen. 
I know this isn't necessarily a cold case, but it was cold for so long. It was actually released to the public only 12 days before this episode will go live that they have identified a killer, which is incredible. It's amazing what technology can do these days. I thought it was very appropriate to feature this cold case in this episode. I thought it was very interesting and it did all kind of circle back to why I started this podcast in the first place, so I couldn't help myself. If you have any information related to Calvin Hoover or his movements between October 1984 and January 2015, please contact the Toronto Police Services, RCMP, or Crime Stoppers. As always, all that information will be in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review on iTunes. If you haven't already, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go follow me at Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Episodes are now being streamed on YouTube. Just search Cold Canada Podcast or follow the link in the episode notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. That's B-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast. My name is Heather Curran, and this has been Cold Canada. Mm-hmm.